As we continue to worship, please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Luke, Luke chapter 6, uh, verses 12 through 19 this morning. Luke chapter 6, verse 12 through 19. And, uh, boy, I just really appreciated uh, this morning's worship. Uh, I had an opportunity, in a sense, almost an opportunity for us to apply uh, what I spoke upon last uh, last sermon. And just uh, when traditions, worship traditions change, and you've been with us for a while, at the last couple uh, communion Sundays, we've had some a uh, little, you know, we're just tweaking uh, some of the worship traditions regarding communion, and I hope that's uh, that's been good for you. It's definitely made me think. Oh, wait, is, is this is this right? Is this the right thing? Is this worship? You know, and uh, uh, but. Uh, it's not the form, you know, it's, uh, it's the truth of, that the scriptures point to us that it points to Christ. And it's like really just neat for me, at least as a pastor, even uh, been a Christian for so many years, is I love when communion just reminds me, again, to think fresh about Christ and his death on, uh, on our behalf. Luke chapter 6, verse 12 to 19, it's a short passage, so I will read the passage in its entirety uh, before uh, the sermon. Luke chapter 6, 12 through 19. It was at this time that he went off to the mountain to pray, and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples to him and chose twelve of them, whom he also named as apostles, Simon, whom he also named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon who was called the Zealot. Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Jesus came down with them and stood on a level place. And there was a large crowd of his disciples, and a great throng of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the coastal region of Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were being cured, and all the people were trying to touch him for power was coming from him and healing them all. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for these truths that we can read and hear, study, meditate, and live according to. Father, we pray that your spirit would be our teacher now as we open up this text. And may you use this passage to challenge us to think more strategically about the ministry that you've entrusted to us, that we would glean the wisdom that Christ displays even in this text, and that we would be faithful followers of Christ. Lord, we thank you for the privilege of, of just looking at your word now. pray that you would be glorified, magnified, as Christ is proclaimed. And these things we pray in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus. Amen. As Christians, we all have the great privilege of uh, being left on earth for a purpose. Uh, God puts us and brings us to be part of a local church where we might fulfill uh, the Great Commission. Uh, And and our purpose as a church is to make disciples of Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father. And so to that end, we have all covenanted together uh, as a church body, as church members of this church, to serve the Lord, 
Uh, and for each of us as par- different members of this body, we each have taken up the call to fulfill and serve in, in those respective roles that each of us has been uh, inclined towards and gifted towards and interested in. And all of us are trying to do our part. All of us are trying to fulfill our function of the body so that we might accomplish this greater purpose of making disciples of Christ to the glory of a God. And as a pastor, I, I always am, uh, and I always want to make sure that I express to you, all of you how much encouragement I receive from many of you. Uh, and I hope that each of you are, are enjoy the ministry and you can see the, the, just the big picture. And when I, as I look back from uh, kind of just the big picture, I see that this church really functions well as a body. Uh, sometimes I, I know that many of you have different different kind of different parts, different uh, functions to play. You wear different hats. Some of you, I, I think, wear more hats than I do. And uh, I, I hope that's not too overbearing for many of you, but I know that some of you do. And I hope that also, just as you serve, that you, you do so with joy, that it's a, it's a joy to you because you've really come to the place where you said, this is God's ministry for me. This is where God would have me serve in this local church. And, and if you've been serving, you say, well, you know, I'm just not finding joy in this ministry. Perhaps there's another area of ministry that God may have you serve in. Maybe another uh, function. There's always different needs in church. And sometimes we're just kind of moving around until we find that spot where we feel this is really the spot where this ministry where God would have me serve. But as I talk a little bit about ministry, I want to challenge us to think strategically about ministry this morning. So I want to throw a little curveball at you. Uh, even as I've encouraged you about ministry, I want to challenge you about ministry. What if you knew that a year and a half from now, say 18 months, you would no longer be here at SF Bible? Or perhaps you relocate. That's quite common, living in San Francisco. We, people come, people go. You relocate for work, for school or family. Or possibly a health issue strikes, or uh, perhaps you enter into glory. But knowing this, that you would not be here 18 months from now, a year and a half from now, as you serve in this church body, what would you do differently with regard to ministry? Would you change anything? Would you do your ministry a bit differently? If you would make some kind of change, and I think most of us, if, if you told me I had 18 months, I'd probably make some changes. Uh, I'd definitely start getting ready to say, man, to prepare for the transition for who someone else who might take over the work. And I think uh, all of us would probably say, well, especially if I was going to go meet the Lord, I'd want to do things with greater excellence even, do work even harder, and do, do, uh, be more faithful in the things that I'm called to. Now that I have you thinking about ministry and the changes you might make, and I think most of us would make some kind of change, I want you to think about this thought about ministry. Since ministry is important to you, it is a, it's a value to you, I hope none of you say, well, I basically stopped doing all ministry because I only got 18 months. I don't want to say that. But I would serve the Lord till the very last days he would have me here. If your ministry is a vital, important ministry, then I ask you, what are you doing to ensure the continuity of your ministry if the Lord should take you away, if the Lord should move you someplace else? 
What are you doing to prepare for the person who's going to fill your shoes next? Do we simply leave it and say, well, that's, that's not my job. That's the job of the elders and the overseers of the church. It's kind of like work, you know? It's like, that's HR's job. They, they go and hire and fire people. They'll bring in someone. They'll do all the training. They'll tell them what they need to do. They'll tell them the policies. I'm just here to do the work, and then I'm, when I'm gone, yeah, somebody else fills it, up, fills it for me. But our work is not, our, our, our ministry is not work. And I believe that there's a better way. I believe there is, and that is that better way is modeled for us by Jesus in this passage. So in short, and really, in, uh, in short, it is, it is discipleship. But I want to unpack it for us a little bit this morning. In this morning's passage, we learn how Jesus prepares for the continuation of his ministry in the face of rising opposition to him. As you may gather from the text and title, basically he cho- his strategy involves choosing 12 disciples. And at first glance, as we look at this passage, we've read it, it's pretty simple, it's a basic passage. It's not, we wouldn't even call it a, a guttural passage. It's a passage you might just kind of read quickly and just kind of move over, just a, a little bit of facts and then move around, right on. And it is a, sir, it does serve as a transitional passage from Jesus' Galilean ministry to his sermon on the plain in, in uh, verse 20 and following. There's a lot of miscellaneous comments about disciples and crowds and, and healings and power. But Luke's introductory phrase here in, chap- in verse 12 of chapter 6, where he says, it was at this time, is an indicator to us, a clue to us, that what we're reading is in relation to what has been happening in the narrative. That there's a connection from this passage to the one before. And the first and the many passages before. Recall that in <clears throat> Jesus' Galilean ministry, his purpose number one, the very reason he always he has explained for why he has been sent upon earth, according to Luke chapter four, verse forty three, is that he has been sent here to preach the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus came for. He has come, his ministry is about preaching the kingdom of God, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, telling how people can enter the kingdom of God through faith in him who is the Messiah. And there was great response to this message. But starting in chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus has begun to face not only crowds of approval, but increasing opposition from the religious leaders in particular. They criticized him. They criticized him for a whole host of things for forgiving sins in 521, for eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners in 530, for eating on the Sabbath in chapter 6, verse 2, and for healing on the Sabbath in chapter 6, verse 7. And although he did not once sin or, nor violate the Mosaic law, the scribes and Pharisees were filled with rage toward him. They were very upset with him, as we saw in verse 11 of chapter 6. It was then that we learned that the Pharisees began to discuss what they might do to Jesus. The other, pa- other parallel passage, Matthew and Mark, tell us that they were actually conspiring to destroy Jesus. Jesus knew this already. He was, he's the Son of God. He's a, uh, he is all-knowing God. He knows their opposition, and he knows where it will lead. It's the very reason why he came. Not only to preach the kingdom of God, 
but to go to the cross and die. So what does Jesus do? In the remaining half of his earthly ministry. Now, at this time, approximately half of his ministry is over. It's a, his ministry was th- lasted three years. There's about 18 months left before Jesus dies on the cross. And in the remaining 18 months of his ministry, he begins prayerfully preparing for the continuation of his ministry through the choice of 12 ordinary men. And today, as we look at this passage, we will see, and just for, as far as an outline for us, uh, a model, if, will, if you will, a, an example to follow, encouragement, some wisdom, practical, some uh, biblical wisdom to help us as we think about ministry. Three strategic steps that Jesus takes in preparing for the continuation of his gospel ministry. Jesus knows he will not be here forever. He's only going to be here for 18 months. And he's coming, he's going to accomplish what's necessary for salvation, but he will ensure the continuation of this ministry through these 12 that he chooses. So what does he do? Let's take a look then and study this passage together. Point number one, or the first strategic step that Jesus takes, we find in verse 12, and that is that Jesus prayed the whole night. He prayed the whole night. Verse 12, it was at this time that he went off to the mountain to pray. And he spent the whole night in prayer to God. So it was at this time, in in the face of opposition, rising opposition, that he goes off to the mountain to seek his father in prayer. And all of us respond to difficulties in different ways. Some of us eat, some of us play video games, some of us go exercise, you know, some of us just vent and you know to other people. Some of us just love to just just tell everybody all our problems. Sometimes we'll talk to our spouse, we'll talk to our friends, we'll talk to our sisters, uh, we'll go post on, on Reddit. Uh, you know, we just want to tell everybody what's going on in our lives. But oftentimes we forget to talk about, the most, talk about it with the most important person of all, God. Jesus went off to the mountain to pray. Now, Luke doesn't identify which mountain. He actually says it's the mountain, so it was a very particular mountain, one that was familiar to even the uh, the audience as they were reading this text. It's a particular mountain somewhere in Galilee. Uh, But the mountain, uh, why the mountain? Because the mountain was a place that provided solitude away from the crowds. We already know uh, from other earlier passages that prayer was a regular practice of the Lord, right? Jesus himself would often slip away to the wilderness and pray, and that was in the midst of his, the, his busy ministry. See, Jesus prays not because he knows he needs to pray or it's a command of God. Jesus prays because he treasures communion with his Father. He treasures the relationship he has with his heavenly dad. He made time for it. He talked with him, everything. And the one, and when you have a relationship with someone, you will talk with them about the things that are important. You don't have to be told, oh, I've got to go tell my wife this. Or I've got to tell my husband this. It's whatever I'm going through, you will naturally want to go talk to your spouse about. And for Jesus, he had a, such a close relationship with his father that he, whatever he faces difficulties and trials and, and decisive moments in his ministry. He goes and talks to his father. Because Jesus understood also who was really in control of his life. 
He needed to seek the Father for strength, for direction. Throughout the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is often found praying before every major turning point in his life. At his baptism in Luke 3.21, before that moment of Peter's great confession of Christ in Luke 9.18, before the, at the transfiguration in 9.28, and then before his arrest and his trials in uh, all of Luke 22 several times. But Jesus especially needed God's direction for what he's about to face. Not just increasing human opposition, but it's the human opposition where it would ultimately lead his crucifixion and his death. And not even that, but worst of all, upon the cross is the, the, the point where he would experience his father's wrath upon him and his father's forsaking of him because of the sins of mankind. So Jesus seeks him out in prayer. We're told by Luke that Jesus' prayer lasts the whole night. It's the whole night. And this is interesting because this is the only time in the New Testament where this word appears. He endured through the whole night as he persevered in prayer. In all likelihood, it's estimated that he prayed about 10 hours. And you're thinking, wow, man, 10 hours of prayer. I remember in seminary, we had a prayer class, and we, uh, our task was to pray one hour a day. Oh, needless to say, that was one of the hardest classes in seminary. Ten hours? I know which many of you think, you, I don't even know what I would say after one hour. What would I say? I would just be repeating myself after a while. How can anyone pray ten hours? But this isn't a problem for Jesus. Because this was prayer directed to God. It's to God the Father, the one whom he had been in communion with for, for all eternity until he came as a baby. This was his father he was speaking to. This was not a problem to speak 10 hours. In fact, it's surprising that it even was limited to 10 hours. You remember when you were dating, or those of you that are in dating, how you could spend all day long, all night long with your boyfriend or girlfriend, and then you were like, oh man, do we have to go be apart? I'm going to miss you. See you later. You spent all day with her. You spent all day with her. You talked hours on end. You talked about everything. Talk about the sky, talk about the grass, the cows and everything, the car, the dust. <laughs> and you could have talked even more, right? Because you just love being with them. Our problem with prayer is that we, just, we simply do not know and love God as we ought. If we truly knew him for the delight that he is, we too would find no problem spending the whole night in prayer with him. Jesus knew and loved the Father and delighted to spend that time with him. But there is also just simply the added significance of the decision that was to be made. And Jesus would talk to his father about the decision, about the rising opposition where that would lead, but about the decision about how the ministry would continue. He entrusted the act of selecting and calling 12 men who could learn from him and share in his ministry to the father. He prayed about these men. He prayed for these men. 
we can learn much from Jesus' example as we do ministry in the church that we would entrust our ministry to him in prayer. Entrust to him the, the people within the ministry. All of us oversee ministry. Um, how often do we pray for those the, the people within the ministry that God's entrusted to us? How often do we pray? Often do we just simply pray about the decisions or strategies that we take or the, decision, the, the problems that we face. But we pray to God because this is his ministry. And he has a much better idea on how to do it than we ever will. So let us learn to continue and to pray about ministry, concerning ministry. Let us learn to pray as Jesus does when it comes to God's ministry. Thy will be done. It was his ministry before we arrived. It will be his ministry when we're gone. So since we recognize the sovereignty of God, we we ask God to to lead us as we discern how best to continue this ministry that God has entrusted to each of us. We can learn a second strategic step from Jesus in verses 13 and 16. And this is really the, the heart of this passage. And that is simply that he chose 12 disciples. He chose 12 disciples. Verse 13, uh, we continue. And when day came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also named as apostles. Notice how he chose them. It's after a night of prayer, uh, the very first thing that he does, Jesus does is he calls his disciples to him. So he called his disciples, and by this time, there was probably a great number of followers of Jesus, maybe even a, a, a crowd of followers of Jesus, numbering it perhaps even in the hundreds Because already we had seen uh, in previous chapters, crowds were searching for him. Large crowds gathered around him as he did ministry. And so certainly, among those, some became disciples. There were people who were looking to hear him. Others looking to be healed by him. And many came to be, those who came to be healed, some stayed to hear and those many who heard decided to stay, and they stayed to listen and follow after his ways. They became disciples. They were became students and learners of Christ. They wanted to hang. They hung off every word that come out came out of his mouth. They wanted to learn from Jesus. They wanted to follow Jesus' ways because they had come become come convinced and believed that he was the Christ. From among this group of disciples, then, this large group of disciples, Jesus chose 12 of them. Notice how many he chose. He chose 12, it says. Now, why 12? Why not, you know, 6 or 7? Seven? 7's a good number. Why not 100? 12 is the number of the tribes of Israel. And most likely, Jesus chose 12 apostles as a sign of judgment upon apostate Israel. By this time, Israel had basically forsaken the Lord. They had turned to a a works-based, legalistic religion. They had forgotten what salvation was about. They thought it was about being descendants of Abraham rather than having the faith of Abraham. Remember, Abraham had believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. 
John MacArthur writes in his book, 12 Ordinary Men, which I commend to you, by the way, if you want to learn more about uh, the disciples, a, a great book, uh, 12 Ordinary Men, just really detailing the, the lives of the 12 disciples and how Jesus chose them. But he writes this, in choosing 12 apostles, Christ was in effect appointing new leadership for the new covenant. And the apostles represented the new leaders of the true Israel of God, consisting of people who believed the gospel and were following the faith of Abraham. So Jesus chose 12 as a, really as a, a judgment upon Israel for their apostasy. That doesn't amount, of course, that doesn't mean that Israel would be forsaken or Israel being replaced. Uh, there would still be a future for Israel as we see in Romans 11, but that's for another day. But notice, uh, probably most importantly in our text, what Jesus named uh, these twelve. We learn in the verse that he named them also apostles. Now, the word apostles is, a, is a, just a very significant word. It, in the Greek, it means a sent one, apostolos. In fact, our word apostle is a, is a transliteration of the Greek, apostolos. It means someone who's been sent. But these were sent not so much as a, necessarily as a courier or a messenger or a herald. We've heard those kind of terms before. But these were sent ones in the sense that they were like official representatives. They were like ambassadors. They were delegates. They were power of attorney, if you will. In the Jewish culture of the day, uh, they were more like, uh, they were, uh, they would have been familiar with these kind of roles. In Jewish culture, they would have understood these, this word apostle to be equivalent to the Aramaic term shalia, shalia. An Aramaic term referring to one who was commissioned by either an individual or group with the authority to act or speak on behalf of the sender. The Jewish uh, Mishnah speaks of the Shalia and says, the one sent by the man is as the man himself. So the Shalia or the apostle is one who has, goes with the same authority as the one who sends them. There was even a Shalia for the Sanhedrin, the ruling Jewish body. So when Jesus names them apostles, everyone in Jewish culture would have understood that he was naming individuals who would be his authoritative official representatives. These men would speak and act for him when he was no longer on earth. These 12 would continue his ministry on his behalf. Jesus delegated to these apostles his power and authority to speak and to act. In fact, later on, on in Luke chapter 9, verse 1 to 2, it is there that they will be given power and authority over demons and diseases, just as Jesus has power over demons and diseases. It's there in Luke 9, 2, that they will be sent out for the first time on Jesus' behalf, on a little, if you will, short-term missions. It was these apostles who would speak on behalf of Jesus, and when Jesus would return to heaven, they continued to teach his message. They essentially became the source of Christ's teaching because they had heard his teaching. And so that's why in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, it says, when the church gathered together, they were devoting themselves. You could have expected them to say Christ's teaching, but it was enough simply to say they were devoted to the apostles' teaching because the apostles represented 
Christ. When they spoke, they spoke on behalf of Christ. Much of the teaching was written down, and that 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 was that that inspired writing was written down and became our New Testament. These apostles became, uh, according to Ephesians chapter two, verse twenty, the foundation of Christ's church. And through these twelve, Jesus Christ would change the world, so that even two thousand years later, lives are still being changed and transformed. So what about these 12 made them so qualified for such a task? What is it if we studied these 12, we could look at their lives, what common denominator would we find that says that these is, this is what you look for when you want to continue or really, really start up a great ministry that Jesus began? And if you're going to start up, a, create a, a startup company today, who would be the, the first 12 people you would hire? What would you look for in them? Or even a little more applicable to us, if you're going to choose 12 members of this church to plant a new church somewhere, um, who would you choose and why? Ah, that'd be a fun icebreaker. Yeah, try that. Now, when I think if we thought about that, you know, in giant time, you're like, you say, oh, I'm bored with what he's saying. Let's just think about 12 people you choose to plant the church and share that list with me later on, please. Um, uh, I think if we were going to choose 12 people in this church, just 12 members to plant a church, we would probably tend to choose those who have already demonstrated leadership skills, right? We'd probably look for someone well, who's already doing the work of the ministry. I'm going to choose those. Or we might choose people that are based upon personality traits, uh, certain personality traits, we might choose those with a, a track record, a faithful ministry. We would choose those who uh, are outgoing people, extroverted people, people kind of people. Uh, we'd probably choose those who are self-starters, people you don't have to kind of always be on. They just kind of, they would just get going. We would choose people who are skillful communicators, likely. Uh, we would, uh, you know, choose people who just simply may have certain skills that we think are important uh, for the task. So when we look at the list of disciples that Jesus chose, notice he doesn't choose any priests, he doesn't choose any scribes, any political leaders. In fact, he chooses simply 12 ordinary men, as John MacArthur's book calls them. The names are listed in verse 14 and 16, which we've already read, beginning with Simon and ending with Judas Iscariot at the end. Just some observations, even as we think about this list of 12, Matthew, Mark, and Luke each include a list of the apostles, as does the book of Acts. And when you compare the four lists together, uh, that you can essentially find out, uh, discern that there are three distinct groups, three distinct groups, three distinct groups of four. They are usually grouped in, uh, I put them in the columns here, and they're in the order of, of Luke's list here. Sometimes the order changes. Sometimes a name gets moved around a little bit, but never out of their groups. The first four are always the first four. The second four are always the second four. The third four are always the third four. And what's also unique is that the the first name in each group of four are always the same no matter which list you look at. Peter is always listed at the beginning of the first group. Philip heads the second 
and James, the son of Alphaeus, of Alphaeus, the son of Alphaeus, heads the last. Now, when we look at this list, who are these people? Then maybe we can let's uh, and just in what little time I have left, I just quickly want to fly through these. I will show you how ordinary they are. Of course, there are things to commend about them, and many of them, but just think about how ordinary these, people, these men were. Uh, Simon Peter is the first, and uh, as you know, Simon Peter was oftentimes the outspoken leader of the group. He was a fisherman by trade, and he was often speaking and acting rashly. He's often the first in, <laughs> to get himself in trouble. He's the only disciple to ever rebuke Jesus, for which Jesus then calls him Satan. He was the first to walk on water and then to sink. He was quick to say that he would follow Jesus to death and then deny him three times. That's Peter. Andrew was Simon Peter's brother, another fisherman. Not known for much more than simply being a guy who could just do one thing and do it very well. Andrew had this knack of just simply bringing people to Jesus. (laughs) He was the one who brought Simon Peter to Jesus. He would bring a little boy to Jesus. He would bring some Greeks to Jesus when Philip didn't know what to do. That's just Andrew. Andrew was one who just kept bringing people to Jesus. James and John were brothers. James and John were brothers, fellow fishermen with Peter and Andrew. While John would be known eventually as the beloved disciple, according to, well, John's own gospel, uh, the two of them had a reputation for fervor and zeal. According to Mark 3.17, Jesus gave them a nickname. He called them sons of thunder. And that wasn't as a way of commendation, but a, a way of mild rebuke. They were essentially those who were eager and very fervent in, 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 uh, in rushing headlong into things. According to Luke 9.54, when the Samaritan villages did not want to receive Jesus, James and John basically essentially asked Jesus, hey, give us the power and we will call down fire on these people right now. These are people who are simply saying, oh Lord, send them all to hell. Because they don't love you. You don't need those kind of people in ministry. Jesus is not that kind of person. Now, Jesus would rebuke them for that kind of uh, rush to judgment. They were also, James and John, they, you remember them, they were the ones who were quick to seek power for themselves. Matthew 20, they convinced their own mom to go and ask Jesus if they could sit on the right and left. And of course, that caused a little bit of turmoil among the disciples. James would be the first to, to die as a disciple. First to die as a, as one of the, first of the disciples to die as a martyr. And John would be the last of the disciples to die. Anyways, these were two fishermen brothers. Philip, uh, Philip is interesting. In that he's, his name it was, is a Greek name. Unusual because he's Jewish here. But it's like that he came from a Hellenistic Jewish family. So I made it a little different. But Philip would be called the pragmatist in the group. Uh, he could give you all the reasons something couldn't be done. Everybody knows people like that in R&B groups. And we need people like that. When it came to the feeding of the 5,000 in John chapter 6, when Jesus asked Philip where they might buy bread to feed all these people, Philip already, in mind, had calculated the answer. He gave them the most analytical answer of all. 200 denarii would not be worth the bread, would not be to feed all these people, Jesus. They're just people who think like that. They, they just, he just whipped it right out. But Jesus was saying, asking the question to test them, not to know how much it's going to cost to buy bread to feed all these people. Jesus, the Son of God, was before him, and, and he couldn't see past the problem to see that Jesus is the answer. Oh, Lord, you do it. You can do it. 
See, nothing's possible with God, but Philip didn't, <clears throat> didn't quite got, <clears throat> get that in his personality. <clears throat> Bartholomew, who is also known as Nathaniel in the Gospel of John, uh, he had a problem with bias or prejudice. When he heard that the Messiah was Jesus of Nazareth, Nathaniel said, well, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Matthew, whom we've already seen earlier in uh, chapter 5, verse 27 following, was a tax collector. When needed to be said, he was a sinner, a traitor to his people, greedy, unscrupulous. Thomas, who is often known as Doubting Thomas, for his doubt of Christ's resurrection, was as really, he was simply a pessimist, a realist, as he probably would have said, but a pessimist. He assumed the worst in each situation, and we see that whenever we see him involved in anything. James, the son of Alphaeus, was also known as James the Less. And he was not as prominent. He's called James the Less, most likely because he's not as prominent as the other James, James the son of Zebedee. You know, even among the ordinary disciples, he was even less than ordinary. He was less. Simon the Zealot uh, was one who belonged to uh, the Zealots. That was, a, according to Josephus, it was, a milit- it was a political party that was quite militant. They might have been labeled terrorists by today's uh, society. They were opposed to Roman rule, and they thought that, well, military solutions were all uh, on the table. This group was involved in fomenting rebellion against Rome. According to Josephus, uh, they were, because they had led the rebellion against Rome, uh, they were snuffed out at the Battle of Masada. And then lastly, Judas the son of James, or second to last, Judas the son of James. He also went by the name Thaddeus. His nickname Thaddeus, and that would have been a nickname, Thaddeus, because conveying that he might have had a gentle, childlike heart. He might have been like a, a mama's boy. A really, you know, just, you know, gentle disposition. He stands, of course, in strong contrast to Simon the Zealot. See, just the, the wide range of personalities in this group. And lastly, there is Judas Iscariot. One who would betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. When we look at this list, we don't see a list of who's who of religious prospects, do we? These are not religious scholars, religious practitioners, or the religious elite of Judaism. They represented various backgrounds, personalities, abilities. They were fishermen, tax collectors, political activists. All were outsiders from Galilee, except for Judas Iscariot. Certainly they were an imperfect, ordinary group of men, but the 12 minus Judas Iscariot were the men whom Jesus chose to continue his ministry and through whom would transform the world. So what do we learn, if anything, about a strategy for continuing ministry? It's this. That when Jesus says, Jesus chooses these 12, it's less about the knowledge, ability, or personality of those whom he chooses, but simply about their availability. God uses available believers who are willing to follow Jesus. These were believers. They were available. They were following him. And when we choose those who might continue the ministry after us, yes, we, we will look at skill, and we do look at personalities, we do look at those kinds of things, but let us not forget, let's not put our faith in the ability of men. Let us put it in our faith in God. 
And if the ones whom we choose are have, are have faith in, in Jesus, then he is, we can have certainty that he is at work in them. And he can transform their available hearts into faithful servant hearts. The last and final strategic step that Jesus takes in prayer for the continuation of his ministry, we glean from verse 17 and 19. So, and that's simply, this really is a summary verse of what is just an introductory statement to the, the sermon in verse 20 and following. But they're indicative of, really, how does Jesus train these 12? If we ask the question now, Jesus choose these 12, how does he train them? What program does he send them into? Does he teach them, start with a fundamentals class? Does he give them some evangelism training? Does he take away them away to send them off to seminary for three years and then come back and they're ready to go? No, what he does is he simply, according to verse 17, 19, he just kept on teaching and healing. He kept on doing what he does. The difference was this time they were with him. Jesus came down with them and stood on a level place, and there was an end, and then so on. He started continuing to teach and preach. Jesus returns to doing ministry now with the twelve. Mark's uh, gospel is, infor- is parallel is informative here in the sense that Jesus appointed 12 that they would be with him, with him. The first aspect of, of being chosen as apostles is that they first be with him. They would follow him wherever he went. They would just watch him. They would observe him. They would see how he does ministry. And then he would send them out to do ministry, to speak on his behalf. And so here we see in verse 17, Jesus just simply keeps doing ministry with them alongside this is how he begins, training his disciples. There's no program, no official program here, allowing them to observe, to assist him. They would listen to him, teach, and learn from his words, the truths which they, in turn, would teach. They would watch him heal and learn that he is the source of power whom they would call upon when it was their turn to heal and cast out demons in his name. And I want to be careful and just add that this does not mean that we, as disciples today, have the same power to, or ability to heal and cast out demons in Jesus' name. Because the power and authority was only given to them as apostles, as shalias, those who have his authority and power, as a confirmation that they were his representatives, to confirm the validity of what they taught, because it was all new revelation. We study, uh, look at Hebrews 2, 3 to 4 for that. But one thing that we can glean is this, that the ministry of Jesus continues wherever his people proclaim his truths and show his compassion. I really like how this passage just balances Jesus' teaching. Yes, his priority, his main purpose is to teach, but his, his life always matched up to what he taught. And what he taught is, I'm not, he's not doesn't teach legalistic religion, uh, a legalistic religion, what he teaches is a, the law of love, a loving compassion that reflects itself in how he relates with the sick, the hurting, the, those who are demon-possessed, and he has compassion on them all, and everyone who comes to him, he heals, he ministers to them, but what he, ultimately what they need is he, they need the truth. It's a great example for us. We, can show, we, <clears throat> we teach the gospel. We talk about the, the, the law of love. We, we preach the love that Jesus loves them. And then if they come in and they interact with us and we, we don't love them, we don't show compassion to them, we don't be our kind of, we don't offer them food when they're hungry, we don't offer them clothes when they're, when they're naked, we don't offer them uh, any assistance through the, whatever trials they may be going through, 
then that will be a hindrance and a, it contradicts the message that, we, that we can, we're trying to convey that God loves them. In our uh, last quarter's class, we, we studied simply the, uh, <clears throat> the, uh, the Christian's relationship with the world. And just remembering what Jesus taught in, in Matthew uh, 5 about how we, we are the salt and of the earth and the light of the world. Let your light shine before men such that they see your good works and glorify your God, our God, God the Father in heaven. Our light shines when they see our works. Yes, the light is in the truth that we preach and teach, but it's got to be also seen and consistently in our works. That's an encouragement we can receive from Jesus here. So verse 1719 simply will introduce the sermon that follows. And we're going to look at the sermon in greater detail, a sermon that simply focuses on the call to love. And what he teaches becomes really the, the bulk of the heart of what the, the teaching and the, that the, the apostles would glean from Jesus and teach themselves when he moves on. In the meantime, let us prayerfully consider then how Christ would, would have us continue his ministry here at Essa Bible. And I, I don't think many of us, or none of us are planning to leave, and we're all going to, Lord, by the grace of God, we'll be here 18 months from now and beyond. And so if you, and if the Lord's really brought you to a place in ministry where you're happy where you are, you want to serve for the rest of your life, that's great. But we must remember that we're disciple makers. And we're disciple makers not just how to follow Christ, but also in helping his disciples and how to serve Christ. Yes, even in our respective ministries. We need to actively be thinking about training up others to do what we do. We don't need any special program for that. We didn't, Jesus did not have one. We just need to simply bring alongside someone to serve with us, to serve with you, to, to watch you, to listen to you, to ask questions of you about the ministry. And then as, you, as you've given enough time, then you would give them opportunities to do the same as you watch them. So that we, if the Lord, uh, if the Lord should take us away at any point, that we know the ministry will continue in good hands, because we have discipled, we've made disciples, we trained up others, not only in the faith, but in the ministry, work of the ministry. So that if the Lord does call some of us to go plant a church, perhaps, that this church will be well equipped. Maybe that's something we can pray towards as well. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word and these truths. Thank you for this just uh, this uh, really quick glimpse through the, the Jesus selection of of the twelve. We pray that uh, as we have learned from Jesus, may we consider his example, his model for us as we to make disciples of Christ, not just in following but in serving you, Lord, in our own respective ministries. Help me as a pastor to train up someone else who will be pastor of this church. Help those who are teachers to train out those who will teach this church. Help those who serve as worship team members and worship uh, uh, to, ser- to serve in those respective roles. Help the ushers to train up those who will also serve as ushers. And help, Lord, every, whatever ministry there is in this church, that we would train up not only those who would walk with you and love you, but to also serve you 
to use our gifts, each one faithfully, for the building of this body, so that we as a church might function the way you have designed us to function, as a church that is a salt and light to our world, making disciples of Jesus Christ to the glory of God. Your glory, Lord. We pray that you would show us the way. Help us to to bring alongside others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.